Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, as we come here, we're excited to be here, and uh, we're excited to hear from you. Um, your word is, 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 is a sword uh, that pierces into our hearts, but it's also a medicine that heals our hearts. And so we pray that you do both works this morning, Lord. We pray that as the Puritans would pray, that you would uh, convict those who are hardened and that you would um, comfort those who are afflicted. Lord, you know what every person here needs. And Lord, as we come to you, Lord, we come with hearts that, um, that may not be good soil for your word this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would soften those hearts, that you would break up the hard shell over our hearts, whether we're hardened to you because of some sin that we're holding on to that we just think might be better. Lord, or um, where it's the worries and cares, Lord, of this week or the week to come. Lord, we pray you break up all those things and just help us to really absorb your word. Help the seed of the gospel to be planted deeply into our hearts and to grow up to eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I meant to look. I have no idea how long we've been doing this, but a long time. And it's been really great. And in this last section, Jesus presents us with two different ways to live. And when you first look at it, you might not see the two different ways, but there are four sets of pairs here. Let me show them to you. So in verse 13, there's the two paths, right? You have the broad, easy way, and you have the narrow, hard way. Um, In verse 15, you have two trees. There's diseased trees and healthy trees. In uh, verse 21, there's two confessions. There's a confession just with the mouth, and then there's a confession with the life in the mouth. And then in verse 24, there's two foundations. There's a sand foundation and a rock foundation. So Four sets of pairs, and what Jesus is doing here is he's putting forward to us two options, two paths. Which is, There's a rich history of this throughout the whole Old Testament of here are two paths, pick a path. And you might wonder, what are these two paths? And you might think, and it would be reasonable to think, that the two paths are um, a path towards following God and a path of running away from God, that somehow it's about um, living a life for God versus living a life for worldly things. You might think he's contrasting religion with irreligion, but that's not what he's doing here. That doesn't fit the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole has not been a contrast of a life lived for God versus a life lived for worldly things, of religion versus irreligion. As you look through, Jesus contrasts something different. And I'll show it to you here. He's contrasting two approaches, and the two approaches are dead religion and the way of the gospel. It turns out that he's not been dealing with irreligion. He's been dealing with a religious, like a dead religious way of life and the way of Jesus. Let me show it to you. So in chapter 6, when he talks about giving and praying and fasting, he, he isn't talking about, hey, watch out that you're not, you're not the person that doesn't give and doesn't fast and doesn't pray. No, he's talking to religious people. He's not talking about uh, people that are running from God in that way that they've gone after the world. He warns people about praying and fasting and giving in a dead religious way. Um, Looking in chapter 5, when he gives the commands about murder and adultery and divorce and retaliation and loving your enemies. In those sections, guys, he isn't confronting irreligious people that have rejected God's law. He's actually confronting religious people that have twisted God's law to make it a little bit more doable. Because what they're trying to do, these religious people, is they're trying to justify themselves. They're trying to feel like they've lived up somehow to God's commands and have earned it for themselves. And so Jesus confronts that. Or look at last week. 
Last week, Jesus talked about judging other people, and it's clear from his teaching. He wasn't contrasting people that have just completely rejected religion or rejected God. He was dealing with dead religious intentions of judging other people. And so it turns out there's not two ways to live. There's three ways to live. And the three ways to live are dead religion, irreligion, and the gospel. The gospel is something completely different than dead religion. Dead religion teaches us to trust in our own law-keeping for salvation. Irreligion gives up on that and says, no, no, the way you find a kind of salvation is by looking for pleasure in this very brief life in this world. And then the gospel comes in, and it's not religion or irreligion. It's something different. The gospel calls us, guys, to trust in Jesus' righteousness and find our greatest joy in him. And the cool thing about the gospel is, is that the gospel ends up creating a righteousness that religion can't create, a heart righteousness as it transforms our hearts. And it also gives us a greater joy than the world can give us. So the gospel gives us greater joy than irreligion can give us. And so the Sermon on the Mount, guys, this whole thing, Jesus is contrasting the gospel way, the way of following him versus dead religion. And that's so needed for us, guys, especially in a church context. Our biggest threat is going to be that we would fall into a pattern of dead religion. And religion versus the gospel works this way. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. You guys ever felt that way about God? I obey God's law, therefore he accepts me. That's not the gospel way. That's not the way of Jesus. That's dead religion. Because the gospel says, I'm already accepted in Jesus, therefore I obey. It creates a whole different um, motivation structure and creates a totally different heart. And as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel motivates us from love and from the grace of God, while dead religion tries to motivate us with fear and insecurity and um, human approval and judgmentalism. It's really an ugly thing, and I know there's probably some of you here today that have maybe said, you know, I was a part of church, I grew up in the church and stuff, but I've left that behind because that's something that just, you know, I just didn't want that. It's just icky, you know, it's just, it was just no way to live. Uh, let me submit to you guys that maybe what you've rejected is not the way of Jesus, but dead religion, and Jesus rejects that too. So please give him a fresh hearing that he is after something totally different than what you've experienced. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what is it like to follow Jesus? In these four pairs, we're going to see different things about what it's like to follow Jesus. So what's it like to follow him? Uh, uh, firstly, following Jesus is hard. Okay, like let's be honest straight up. Because I think a lot of people have uh, come to follow Jesus, found that it's hard, and then they're mad at him. As if he was like an infomercial or something. And said, come, this is going to be easy, this is going to be simple. He never said that. Somebody else might have said that, but he never said that. Look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he gives two paths here. One is a wide, easy path. Easy to find, easy to walk down. It's a wide, easy path. The other one is a narrow, difficult path. You know, it's like, where is the gate to this thing? It's a real narrow and it's a real difficult trail, right? Following Jesus, guys, is hard and narrow. Why is it narrow? It's narrow because you don't just drift into the kingdom. You don't just find yourself there accidentally. You seek it. The kingdom and Jesus, is, this is something you seek. This is a path you're on because you meant to be on it, not that you accidentally ended up on it. Um, several authors have said that, I mean, even a dead fish can appear to swim downstream, right? It takes a live fish to swim against the current, and that's what it feels like to follow Jesus. The path is hard. And, you know, I was thinking about it this week, and, like, if 
Following Jesus is hard. And I was thinking, like, it probably shouldn't surprise us that following Jesus is hard, right? You've decided to follow Jesus, okay? The Jesus, right? And so it makes a lot of sense that following him around could be a hard thing. I mean, think about those first 12 disciples. When they were called to follow Jesus, they literally followed him. Right? They walked around with him. It wasn't metaphorical like we talk about. They walked around with him. They went with him wherever he went. And he led them all kinds of hard, painful, scary places, didn't he? And it'll be the same for us, guys. As being Jesus' disciples means that we follow him. And he leads some hard, painful, scary places. And I know that some of you guys are in that hard, scary place right now. And some of you guys have been to that hard, scary place And the rest of us are headed to that hard, scary place, right? Following Jesus is hard. Um, There'll be times for you when you're following Jesus that, like those first disciples, you wonder if it might be better just to turn around and leave. Um, Remember in John 6, I love John 6, one of my favorite things. When Jesus, he feeds the 5,000, right? And then he has, uh, and then he teaches, and they're all excited, right? Who doesn't like free food? And so he feeds these 5,000 people. Everybody's excited about him. And then he decides he's going to teach like one of the hardest teachings he could come up with. And everybody bails. And he turns to the 12 disciples and he says to them, do you guys want to leave too? You guys remember what Peter said? I love what Peter said. Peter said this. He's like, Peter's like, we don't know what you meant either. You know, it freaked us out just as much. He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He's like, it was hard for us too, but where else are we going to go? Jesus leads us, guys, on some of the most rugged, painful, scary paths, but he always takes us to the most beautiful destinations. Unspeakably beautiful. I mean, it reminds me of those times when, when you're hiking maybe through a desert landscape and you come across this just like beautiful surprise, some sort of a plant or some sort of a view or something like that. Jesus leads us down super rugged trails, but to the most beautiful destinations. And, and, and at some point at the end of your life, when you crest that final part, that hardest part of the trail, right, and you look over, just look over the crest of the hill and you get your first glimpse of the new world. You know, he's got a new world. There's a true promised land that we're headed to. It's a, it's a real place where we're going to build and cultivate and create and explore and enjoy the reign of Jesus, the perfect king. Guys, that hard path is going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I mean, the, the spiritual sores on your feet and the dangers and the, and the hunger and the thirst and the burning heat is all going to be worth it. Jesus leads us down, and there's no way to minimize this, rugged, scary, painful places, but always to the most beautiful destinations. I love what the USC, um, there was a USC philosophy professor, Dallas Willard, he's passed away now, but he was the head of the department at one time. And somebody asked him at one point, Dr. Willard, why do you follow Jesus Christ? And you know what his answer was? Who else did you have in mind? Right? I mean, who else did you have in mind? I mean, we're going to follow somebody, we follow him. So following Jesus is hard. Secondly, following Jesus is about truth. Take a look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So we had two kinds of trees. We had two paths, now we have two trees. There's diseased trees, and there's healthy trees. Now when I say diseased tree, you're probably like, ooh, you got this in your mind, it's this nasty looking diseased tree. They look the same, according to Jesus here. The way you tell them is by their fruit. And what's he talking about with these trees? Jesus is warning us in context about false prophets. 
false prophets. And you might wonder, gosh, when I read in the New Testament, there's so many parts about false prophets and false teachers. Why is this such a big deal? And the reason it's a big deal is because biblical truth is the way we know we're following the real Jesus. Okay, Because you could have a Jesus in your mind that kind of agrees with everything you do and kind of is your life coach, and, you know, even when you do bad things, he's like, no, no, that's okay, I would have done the same thing, you know, like, it's a Jesus like that, that's not the real Jesus, right, and so the Bible shows us the true Jesus, and the Bible shows us that we're really on the path following him, because as we're living through our lives, there's going to be many voices that are going to try and pull you off the path of following Jesus, and some of these people are kind of religious con men, or con women, if that's a word, um, some are just, you know, playing into the power of the demonic. Some of them just don't know what they're talking about. You know, there's a lot of people that confidently talk about things spiritual and don't know what they're talking about. Have you guys ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? I would, like, highly recommend it. It's uh, written by John Bunyan. He lived in the 1600s. But it's very readable. You can get very readable. You get one with pictures, like this one. And, um, but what's really cool in this story is Christian is his name, the main character. He's on his way to the celestial city. So there's this whole, you know, idea of he's walking along a path. And he meets all kinds of people, different people trying to deceive him and trying to kind of get him off the path. Plus good guys, too. Um, but people that deceive him. And it's convenient because they all have names that are obvious. Okay? So, like, he comes across a guy, and the guy's name's Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Okay? Like, we know he's a bad guy. Um, there's a, a guy named Formalist. There's a guy named Hypocrisy. Okay? It's like, this is obvious. It's not that way in our lives, is it? Those voices aren't clearly labeled. Jesus says here that there'll be wolves in sheep's clothing. And so he says, beware. Beware of who you listen to. There's two ways to beware. One of them would be, know this book, guys. Know this book. Know the word. Um, eat the word. Consume it. Love it. Live in it. Enjoy it. Know it. Um, and check all Bible teaching to the word. I mean, it, it's not like before the Reformation. I mean, you have the Bible in your hands. I mean, you can check these things. You can know this word. And it's so savory and tasty and enjoyable to know God through his word. And, um, and check it. Check, check teaching according to its context. You know, you have somebody take a verse or like a part of a sentence and go and spin out this like beautiful message. And it has nothing to do with what the passage is about. Look at the context. Look at the verses around it. See if it really connects. See if it really checks out. That's okay to do. You should do that for everybody you hear. Um, in Acts, the Jews in Berea were commended for checking up on Paul. The Paul. Okay? So Paul's teaching him, and Luke says, hey, it was really good. They didn't trust him at all. They just looked through the Bible to make sure what he was saying was true. Isn't that cool? They were teachable, but they checked. You should check. Jesus says, um, if you abide in my words, you're my true disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Like, you can know his word. Secondly, what Jesus is saying here is bad fruit has bad effects. You know, these diseased trees, these diseased teachers have bad fruit. Um, so make sure that whatever you're hearing is biblical, but also that it produces good fruit. Because there's teaching that comes from the Bible, but the way that it's given and the way that it's given, the kind of the slant that it's given from produces bad fruit. Does the teaching you're listening to produce good fruit? Does it improve your relationships? Does that teaching make you less judgmental? You know, like we talked about last week. Does it make you more forgiving? Is it making you more humble and less prideful? Does it, does it make you less suspicious and fearful? Uh, does it make you more loving and more joyful and more hopeful? Does it give you stronger affections for Jesus? You'll know them by their fruit, right? So following Jesus is hard. Following Jesus is about truth. Third, following Jesus starts with a personal union with Jesus. Take a look at verse 21. He says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And, and did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's two types of confessions, right? There's one of just with the lips. It's just a, a, a verbal confession of like, yeah, I follow Jesus. Jesus is great. He's, he's the one I follow. And then there's a profession that also has a life. It has a whole heart and a life to it. And Jesus is saying here is that some people on the day of judgment will claim to be his disciples, and they aren't. And, and guys, this is the scariest passage in the Bible. He'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some guys will expect heaven on the final day, and instead will be sent to hell. I mean, this, I find this to be the scariest verse in the entire Bible. Um, and there's nothing more important, guys, than knowing that you won't be one of these people. But notice something about these false disciples. They have these mighty works, but they have no living relationship with Jesus. And therefore, there's no change in their lives. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You might think if somebody could prophesy, like certainly they know the Lord. Right? No. Uh, they say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? These people were doing exorcisms, you know? Like, how many exorcisms have you guys have done? You know, like, these people were, like, casting demons out and stuff like that. Surely that's a sign. It's not a sign. Um, they were um, doing mighty works. It means miracles. They were doing miracles in God's name. And, and, and he says, you are workers of lawlessness. We need to be careful to not replace religious doing with real knowing of Jesus. That's what's happening here. It's that idea of just doing more and more service and more and more deeds without really giving Jesus your heart, your real core of you. You know, Because we can just do things for him. Or we can give him the really center of our being. Um, that's the thing we need to do. And that's the thing that when we do it, we'll wonder, why did I wait so long? Like, why did I resist him, right? Um, and so these, these mighty works are no sign of a true relationship. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Um, I want to show you something else in here too, though. Did you notice Jesus' incredibly high view of himself in this passage. <laughs> Did you notice that? Let me read it again. I want you to just imagine you're, you're back there in the first century. You're, you're following this like traveling teacher around. Looks like any other guy. Um, you're on a hillside somewhere uh, in the spring and you're listening to this traveling preacher. And this is what he says. Now listen for the me's and the eyes. Okay, this is like, looks like a regular human being saying this. This is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And then he says this, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is intense, guys. I mean, Jesus is saying that he is the judge on judgment day. And he's speaking to Jewish people, and in their minds, God would judge all humanity someday, Right? And Jesus is saying, you know when that happens? You're going to be looking right in my face. This is an intense claim, you know? This is an intense claim. Um, On that day, many will say to me, Jesus is also saying that being known by him is the way into the kingdom. He's saying, not only am I the judge, I'm the only way for you to escape the judgment, right? And that's one of the reasons the crowd responds the way they do. Look in verse 29. It says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Because they heard him as one who had authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. You can imagine them scratching their heads and going like, did, I, I don't know if I was paying attention. Did he just say 
that he's the judge of the world? Like, I like that whole thing about the birds and the flowers, and that was nice. But then, did he say he's the eternal judge? And, and he's like, yeah. And, and another one says, well, did he just claim to be the only way to pass the judgment? Yeah, I think he did. This is why, guys, the religious establishment wanted to kill him. Okay, in a couple weeks, we'll celebrate Good Friday and then Easter. The reason they wanted to kill him is he was doing this. Astonishment is the proper response to Jesus. Okay, um, And that's why we can't dismiss Jesus by saying, oh, yeah, Jesus, uh, good teacher, nice guy. Right? No. He claimed to be the judge of the world, and he also claimed to be the only way to escape the judgment. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Entering the kingdom is about knowing him. It's who you know that gets you in, not your own credentials. Isn't that interesting? Religion teaches that, dead religion teaches that it's your own credentials that get you in. You know, you have to pass a test. You have to do a certain amount of good works. He is saying it's who you know that gets you in. Why? Because we're sinners. You guys realize, like when I say we're sinners, you guys might be like, well, I don't know. That seems kind of strong. You guys realize that we don't even measure up to the simplest and most agreeable standard of goodness? I'll show you in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay, this is the most simple and agreeable standard of goodness we can come up with. I think we can all agree on that one, right? You might go in the Old Testament and go, I don't know about these food laws and all this. Let's just like take all that away and say that the rule is, the standard of, of, of judgment for Jesus is, do unto others as they would have you, uh, as you would have them do unto you. Um, Jesus has said in another way later, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, we can all agree on this. This is a standard we can all agree. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we can agree on this. And it's simple, too. It's not like the several hundred commands of the Old Testament. It's not like a command where it's like, oh, yeah, I was supposed to go seven times counterclockwise before I sat down and ate or something like that. It's some sort of rule you can't remember. It's a very simple rule to remember. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's simple. It's agreeable. But you know what, guys? None of us have done it. None of us have done it. Uh, none of us have even wanted to do it all the time. And when we did want to do it, we didn't accomplish it, right? You have not lo li loved your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself would be to meet the needs of all those around you with the same intensity you meet your own needs. Love your neighbor as yourself. We haven't done it, right? We certainly haven't loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so none of us have done it. None of us have succeeded. I mean, I know some people go, oh, you know, I really love the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, I just... I don't do church, and I don't do Christianity. I just try to, like, live the golden rule. And it's like, okay, you, you try, but you don't. I don't. Do you? None of us do. Let's be real. And so what we need, guys, is we need a way to pass the judgment that's not through our own credentials. It's through knowing him. It's knowing him and being known by him, even more importantly. Uh, when Jesus says, guys, here to these people, he says, I never knew you. It's not like, you know, I never heard of you. You know, or I never met you. That's not what he means. Knowing in the scriptures has a more intimate character, doesn't it? You think about Genesis when it says Adam knew his wife and she conceived and had a son. When Jesus says that these people, that he never knew them, what he means is that he never had a personal covenant union with him. He never had a personal covenant union with them. And what's really cool, guys, when you first come to be a Christian, when you first come to trust in Christ, when you say, yep, my credentials will not work, um, I am a sinner, I need Jesus, um, he's the way, and you trust in him, you know what happens when that first happens? Is you become connected with Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You actually become united with him. It's just really, you can't see it, 
but it's something that happens where the Holy Spirit comes into you and the Holy Spirit is connected to Christ and you're united to him. Here's how Paul describes it. You really should turn here. Philippians 3.8 says this. Paul says this about his union with Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. You guys realize Paul gave up everything, right? Paul was a very respected teacher, very well-educated, very well-liked, had Roman citizenship, had everything going for him. And then he goes and he follows this Jesus, and his whole life blows up, right? Becomes persecuted and hunted. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he's not exaggerating. And counted them as rubbish. And listen, listen to this. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And don't miss that. Found in him. That's talking about union with Christ. That you would somehow be connected with Christ spiritually so that you are treated the way Jesus deserves to be treated. You're, in, in other parts of the New Testament, it talks about us being part of his body, body parts of his, right? right? United with him. He says that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having, listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. And so this union we get with Christ, this knowing with Christ, is spiritual. And it's spiritual because it's the Holy Spirit. So just like I described, you come to trust in Christ. Christ, Jesus, he's both God and man. He's in heaven. You become united to him, connected to him via the Holy Spirit. Older authors talked about the Holy Spirit, this person, the Holy Spirit, God, being like an umbilical cord that connects us to Christ. So that we become, in the spiritual realm, if you could see it, we're connected to Jesus when we first come to trust in him. So it's a spiritual connection. It's also a legal connection. Because you're united with him like that, just like when a husband and wife are united in that kind of a covenant union, you get everything that he deserves because you're in him. And so like Philippians talks about, you get what's in Philippians 3.9, a righteousness that's not your own that comes from your obedience to the law but a righteousness that comes through faith. Because you're connected with him, you're treated like him. You can't be lost. You can't be lost because Jesus doesn't lose his body parts, right? Jesus doesn't lose parts that are him. We become connected to him. So it's spiritual, it's legal, and it's also life-giving. Because remember I said it's like the, the, the Holy Spirit, this person, God, it's not it, this is a he. God, the Holy Spirit, because he's connected to Christ and connected to us, Jesus' life is able to flow in through us. So not only do we have this this uh, righteousness, but we also get this real life that flows into us. Jesus' life begins to flow from Christ into you and through you. And, and John 15, Jesus talked about it as like a vine and branches, right? It's a life-giving union. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you this morning ever been united with Christ? Does Jesus know you in that personal, intimate, covenant way? That would be the most important question to ask. When I say, have you ever, it would still be happening now, okay? Have you ever known yourself to be united with Christ in that way? And how would you know? Well, one thing would be, you would be banking on Jesus' righteousness, not your own, okay? Talk to people about the gospel. A lot of times people say, well, I'm a good person. I'm sure it'll go fine with me at the judgment. It's like, no, that's not the way to look at it. It's his righteousness, right? On that final day, if you were to be asked, which you won't be asked, I don't think, um, you know, why should you be allowed into heaven? You say, I'm with him. <laughs> I'm connected to him. I'm connected to Christ. It's all based on him. It's who you know that gets you in, right? Um, the other thing would be, do you ever experience the life of Jesus living through you? So it would be banking on his righteousness and experiencing his life through you. And if, if not, I would just challenge you, read Philippians 3, 8, and 9. 
and ask him for it. You can just go through all those things that Paul says that he wanted, and you ask God for it, and he will give it to you. And, and if you want to talk to anybody about it, I would love to talk to you about it. Uh, lastly, following Jesus, you won't fall. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. So we had two paths, we had uh, two types of trees, we had two types of uh, professions or confessions of Christ, and now we have two foundations. We have sand and we have rock. Jesus compares our lives to houses, to houses being built. And what, it's interesting what he says about our lives, right? He's saying about the, the, that the most important part of your life, of my life, is a part that's hidden, right? Foundations aren't seen normally, right? The foundation is a hidden part of the house, Right? And, um, and, when, and, and the two houses can look identical, right? And have totally different foundations is what he's saying. One could be built on the rock and one would be built on the sand. And during the dry weather, they look the same, right? They look the same. It looks like, you don't even, it, looks like it doesn't matter, you know? One guy spends a lot, has this real rock foundation. Another guy doesn't, builds it on the sand. And the guy in the house with the sand is like, that was dumb for you to spend all that on a rock foundation. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Look, our houses are the same, right? But when the storm comes, guys, then things are revealed. When the storm comes, the house built on the sand collapses, and the one that's on the rock stands. And it's the same with our lives, guys. When our lives are good, the weather's good, our lives are good, um, it's not obvious always who has that hidden union with Christ, right? Life is good. Everybody kind of looks the same when life's good. But when the storm comes, guys, what's hidden inside is seen. That living connection to Christ, that union with Christ is revealed. And there's, there's a supernatural life of love and joy and peace that's seen. And um, I had a, an opportunity to see this in the life of a family member of mine. Um, it's been a couple years now, but um, my cousin Emily, she, uh, who a lot of you guys knew, she was uh, always super joyful follower of Jesus, you know? But you might wonder, you might think, well, you know, her life's pretty good, too. She's an elementary school teacher, and she enjoyed that, and she, she had great friends around her and stuff like that. And she was always a joyful follower of Jesus. And then uh, in her 30s, she's found to have cancer. And she had this cancer of her adrenal glands, and it was not operable. And we knew that pretty early on. And so she went through chemo and, and stuff like that and just gradually wasted away in her 30s, you know. Didn't have a chance to be married, didn't have a chance to have kids, didn't have any of that, right? Um, but you know what, guys? Emily's joy remained and even grew. <laughs> her joy grew as her body wasted away from cancer and from chemotherapy. And I saw her the day before she died. And um, she was out most of the day. She just laying there in her bed, just looked nothing like she used to look, right? And uh, like, hi, Emily, you know? And she just woke up, <laughs> Eric, you know, and greeted me with this joyful <laughs> thing she always does, you know? She greeted me joyfully. Guys, Emily had a secret source of joy which her suffering put on display. You could see her foundation. You know? That's what the storm does. And so when the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against her body, she didn't fall because she was found on the rock. And neither will you if you're found in him. 
following Jesus, you will not fall. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, and we pray that we would just live in it and love it and come back to it and sit before your feet, Lord. We can still do that. We can, like those people were able to do, sitting there at the base of that hillside, listening to you and that the way that you taught, and we can still do it. We could even find a hillside and bring your word and listen to you teach. And we pray, Lord, that we would learn to be your disciples, to be true students of you. Lord, we pray that everyone in this room, Lord, that no one would, would end this day today without having that sure foundation of knowing that they are right with you, that they are united with your son, that they are righteous in him that they have a flow of life coming from your son that is not them, that they are consistently surprised at things that you do through their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would do that among us. I thank you for all those that are here, Lord, that that made the trek out. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would meet them and um, that they would be blessed by their time with you. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.